Hold on. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, it's good to see you all this morning. Um, I'm very happy to be in church on Easter. I don't take that for granted. Um, I've been uh, speaking to a few people, of course. You know, we've had this uh, the COVID pandemic and people's responses in various ways. And last Easter, very many churches did not meet in person for Easter. Very many did. Uh, maybe most. I don't know if I can quite say most, but very many. And uh, I am grateful to be able to meet in person. And I wonder if this Easter is not actually going to be particularly important in some way. If God is not going to have a special blessing on us. I think there may be people who come to church having missed it for a while and not even realize that they had missed it. And uh, it, may, it may create a renewal. I pray that it may. I pray that it may. And I'm grateful to, to be here with you all this morning. Um, before we uh, begin, if you'll pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for his willingness to go through what he did for us, Lord. And he did it willingly. No one takes the life of Christ from him. As it says in John, he says, he lays it down willingly. Willingly. And it it's a fearful thing, and it's hard to understand, Lord. But we love it. And we love that he was willing to die, and we love that he conquered that death. May that death and life be death for us of the sinful man within us, and a new life with him. We pray our resurrection would follow his as he promised. I pray for new life in this country and in this world, Lord. There is only one Lord. And we need that, Lord. Humble us, Lord, before you. Forgive us of our sins. Draw us to repentance. And may our hearts be lifted up, even as Christ himself was lifted up. In your sense, let me pray. Amen. Brookwood, today is the day that Christ has promised to us. And... Uh, there is a very old um, Christian tradition of Easter greetings. I'm sure some of you know this, where uh, it's very old, centuries old, where on Christmas Day, Christians would greet another and someone would begin by saying, He is risen. And then you'd hear the reply, The Lord is risen indeed. And so, if you will, I'd like to just do that this morning. If you just answer me, He is risen. He is risen indeed. The Lord is risen indeed. It's a simple thing, it's a true thing. And let us say it. Let's say true things over and over and good things. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> today is, as you know, the day we celebrate when Christ has risen victorious over the grave. He went to the cross. He's gone through it. He'll never go through the cross again. He says, it is finished. It is finished. In the book of Hebrews, it says Christ died once and for all. There will be no second cross. He has done it and he has accomplished all that is needed and he rose victorious, having buried our own sin and shame and mortality with him. That's what really died. That's what really died. Our sin died. And he's carried us to live with him, a new and holy life of the redeemed. Today is a day of triumph, a day we celebrate, a day of truth of the gospel. That means our eternal life and our reunion with the creator that we have offended through our own sin and disobedience. This morning, maybe surprisingly, I want to speak of the gospel message, but I want to speak of it from a particular vantage point 
I'm going to speak on the problem of despair. Of despair. I think despair also has a place in this gospel story. Despair. What is despair? Despair when we surrender our hope. Despair when we sacrifice our ideals. Despair when we abandon faith because we cannot see a way forward. We cannot make sense of where we are. We can't understand why God would lead us here. Why would he let this happen? And when we look forward to tomorrow and the day after, maybe all we see is darkness, endings, loss, abandonment, and we despair. Does despair have a part in the Easter story? I think so. Turn with me to the scriptures. Start in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Before Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, before he enacted the gospel story, he told us exactly what he was going to do. The cross was not a surprise for Jesus. It did not catch him off guard. It was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It was not something that happened that he had not planned on. The cross was the goal. The cross was the goal. As soon as Christ was born, he was meant to die. It's hard for us to understand how that could be part of a plan. And it was part of the plan. There are many passages in Scripture that say this in various ways. I'll give you uh, one kind of vantage on that this morning. After Jesus had been with his disciples for a while, he had had to warm up the disciples for a while. He had to warm them up. They didn't know exactly who he is at first. And they're kind of slowly learning. And he doesn't just say everything flatly and plainly at first. But he gets to a point in his relationship with them where he starts being more direct and more honest about who he is and what he is meant to be doing, uh, even though they may be bewildered and cl- uh, confused by it. In Mark chapter 8, we see maybe the first, but certainly one of the major first times where Jesus said the gospel plainly, even before he had performed it. If you turn with me, Mark 8, I will read verse 27 through 33. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on his way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's a very important moment where Jesus tells, after he gets uh, the appropriate reaction from Peter, of course. Peter, who's so willing to speak. Who knows how many of the others believe this, but Peter was the one who said it. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. That means Messiah. 
Christ is the, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah. He says, you're the Messiah we've been waiting for, aren't you? And we are. And he told people not to tell, he told them not to tell the people yet because there's a timing that Jesus has. But he's right. And because he got that right answer, Jesus let him in on more that he was going to do. And he tells him, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He says, I am the Messiah. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. And I will be rejected by the people in charge, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They will reject me. Isn't that strange? You would think that the elders and the chief priests and the scribes would accept the Messiah. They know the Bible better than anyone, right? But they will reject him. And he will be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. Peter is upset by this. This is a surprise to Peter. It's not the kind of answer he would expect. He would expect a kind of message of triumph, a message of victory. This doesn't sound like victory to Peter. You're the Messiah! He says, yes, and they're going to kill me. And Peter's response is very interesting to me. He actually, it says, uh, he began to rebuke Jesus for this. Why? What? I imagine something in his mind is something like this. Like, Jesus, why are you being so negative? You're the Messiah. I believe you're the Messiah. And you, you admit it too. Why? Which, this is good news, not bad news. Why do you think you'll be rejected? That's not going to happen to you. Not while I'm here. I'm Peter. I won't let them hurt you. If anybody tries anything, I'll be there. We all will. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. We'll stop this from happening. No one will send you to the cross. No one ever will. He thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. He thinks he's helping him. He's saying, Jesus, don't be so negative. Talking about death. Rejection. The people love you. You do miracles. You give them bread. You heal them. Why would they kill you? It's ridiculous. No one is going to hurt you. We wouldn't let it happen. And I can't even imagine why anybody would want to. You're too negative, Jesus. There will be no cross for you. You will be celebrated and loved by the people. Jesus knew better. And whatever Peter's intentions here, I think probably he's trying to do a favor for Jesus by saying these things, but it is not a favor because Jesus is supposed to die. He is supposed to go to the cross. And, G- and Peter, well-meaning maybe, is standing in the middle of the way saying, you will not go to the cross. And you see Jesus' extremely stern reply, get behind me, Satan. If you stand as an obstacle between Jesus and the cross and say, this will not happen, it will not happen, whether he knows it or not, he's on the side of Satan. He's opposed to the purposes of God, which are crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. Jesus is born to die, and he's meant to go there. And to hinder that, to interfere with that, is a problem. It's a problem. Of course, Peter's very chastened by this. He's shocked again. There's several places in here. Just after this victory, he had his great victory. Peter's one says, you're the Messiah. Good job, Peter. But you won't go to the cross. No. No. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. The Messiah has to tell us what the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. Because we don't know. Our best guesses are wrong. That's the gospel. He hasn't been crucified at this point, but he tells him. And he said, plainly. Turn the next chapter in Mark. Mark 9, down in verse 30. That was not the only time Jesus told his disciples of the crucifixion and resurrection. Here we have another one. Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man 
is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. He told them. They didn't understand. Why do they not understand? It's a simple enough statement. What are they thinking? They think, what is this? Surely this is some kind of elaborate metaphor. He will die and then rise again. What does that mean? He speaks in parables all the time, right? He's talking about sheep and he talks about seeds and he talks about vines and mountains. He talks about, maybe this is a metaphor for something else too. What could it possibly mean when he says he's going to die and rise again? Or maybe they don't want to understand him because it's a fearful and terrible thing. And what would it mean for Jesus if he has to really go through this? And what would it mean for us as his disciples if he has to go through this? That can't be what he means. They don't understand him. Jesus told them again, next chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. How many times does Jesus tell them this? How many times does he explain the gospel to them? We have at least these three in Mark. Who knows how many other times he did. He tells them, this is getting ready to happen. Have you ever done this? You tried to prepare somebody you love? Maybe your family, maybe young children. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And it's like... Has this penetrated? And then it happens. They're shocked. Like, I've told you. I've warned you. I've tried to prepare you. What could Jesus mean by saying he would be killed and rise from the dead? How could they reject him? Aside from the statements in Scripture, there are other passages like this that are explicit that the disciples did not get it, even when they were told plainly. You could still conclude that, even the Scripture didn't say this, by looking at their reaction. As Jesus headed towards his death and entered into Jerusalem... The social and political situation grew more intense. You could see the stakes being raised. At some point in his ministry, he's working out in the fields and he's healing this and that. And, you know, he's kind of far from the cities. And as he moves toward Jerusalem, the capital, and these things start coming into play. And then the powers that hate him are marshaled in face there. But you also have crowds that love him and wave palms and say, Hosanna. You could feel a conflict is coming and the stakes are higher and higher and the pressure builds. And as he goes into Jerusalem, all of these claims, it it starts to seem real to the disciples in a way. It must not have seemed real before, even though he had already told them. The pressure gets stronger and the disciples seem to go wobbly under that pressure. They seem to kind of lose their footing uh, amidst the uh, previous confidence. Uh, Turn to Gospel of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, I'll read the first five verses. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Tell them again. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, 
and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They've got to get this right. They want to take him out. They have to do it the right way. When the timing is right, when the opportunities come, they're waiting and waiting for the opportunity. And they'll take it when it comes. Something is coming to a head here. Something is rising. The pressure is building. And who can tell what the result will be? The, the people in charge are marshalling. But then we have these reactions. They're pro and con. There's conflict coming up. And Jesus himself, he does crazy things all the time. Who knows what he'll say? Who knows what he'll do? Who knows what miracle he'll perform? People are just watching, kind of increasingly fascinated. What will happen? What will happen? Who can know? Well, they should know. Jesus just told them and told them again and told them again. He explained it to them repeatedly long before it happened. Did they just not believe him? Or did they not completely believe him? Were they afraid to believe him? Did the pressures and threats just provoke their fears? Did it provoke their despair? Despair is not to trust in the promises of God. Despair is not to trust in the character of God. Despair is not to trust in the power of God. Oh, but I have good reason not to trust in the promises of God. You see, well, so did they. They had reasons. They had reasons to worry, and if they wanted to focus their eyes on that, they could have come up with many reasons. Think this isn't going to go well. Maybe Jesus just doesn't understand the situation like I do. He hasn't probably seen as much as I have. He seems, maybe he's a little naive, but I know how the world works, and this won't go well. The disciples had lots of evidence that things were going to go badly. Tons of it, so they thought. This morning I want to talk about two kinds of despair. And I think both of them are a part of the Easter story. The first kind of despair is the most severe kind of despair. It is a deep and full despair and hope. And it breaks the back of our fundamental faith. And it is a despair that leads ultimately to death. It is an example of Judas. Judas had been a disciple and follower of Jesus for years. He had lived in and among the other disciples. And he is famous, of course, as you all know, for betraying Jesus. But consider, Judas did not betray Jesus immediately. Like, he didn't betray Jesus on day one. He spent time with him. And he went a fair while before he ever did it. Presumably, like the other disciples, he must have heard Jesus preach on a number of occasions. To deliver parables and sermons. Words of encouragement, words of rebuke. He must have heard all of these. Presumably he saw healings, miracles. Jesus did miracles. I assume Jesus, Judas saw that. He said something, who is this guy? Something special about him. Enough to keep him sticking around day after day. But it appears that once the pressure started to build, once the fun and games started to be ending, Judas, Judas despaired of that hope and looked for a way out. When things started to get bad, and things start to seem very bad, it's almost as if he said, well, Jesus is headed for a disaster. I might as well try to save myself at least. 
out of this wreck. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Why? There's several theories. I'm sure you've heard several theories. The Bible, in my judgment, never spells out his motivation explicitly. I think it implies some things. One possibility is that maybe Judas was in this for personal gain. Maybe he also had hope that Jesus would overthrow Rome and become a military conqueror to liberate them. And perhaps Judas became disillusioned the closer he got, and he says, Jesus isn't going to do this at all. Where are the arms that are required? Where is the soldiers? Where is the command? Where is the anger? When it, became, when it appeared to Judas that Jesus would not or perhaps would not be able to overthrow the empire of Rome, I wonder if Judas despaired. Back in Matthew 26, look at this. A few verses later, starting in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There's a couple things I want you to notice about this very brief passage. The first thing is that Judas' dealings with the chief priests and his betrayal of Jesus was his own initiative. He approached them. He knew they were interested. They were sitting and waiting, right? Waiting for an opportune time. But Judas seems to be the one who came up with the plan. He says, you want Jesus gone, don't you? Yes. He's like, let's make a deal. It's not clear that the chief priests knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus. It's not like they picked him out and said, you're weak. It seems to have happened the other way, where he volunteered his services to them. They provided a motivation in wanting to kill, but Judas provided an opportunity. He says, here's how it's going to go. He just wants a little bit out of it. He says, you going to give me something for this? I'll do it. Make it worth my while. Second point I want you to notice about this brief passage is that Judas' decision to betray came only after the context of social pressure began to mount. Just earlier in the chapters I read to you, where the elders and people are plotting, it seems to me that Judas despaired when things started to look bad. In the context of this, uh, that it's, it's almost like he says, um, this is going to happen anyway. The elders are going to win. The powers are going to be victorious over Jesus. And so I can't stop that. Nobody can stop that. Jesus himself can't stop that. So I might as well help that process along. Help it to happen if it means I can get something out of it. Not only am I worried that evil will win, I might as well cooperate with evil if it means I can get some cash or get some benefit in this world while I'm still alive. I will cynically betray the ideal even because I can't have that ideal. I give up on the possibility that it can be true. It can't actually go the way Jesus says it's going to go. That will never happen. Since it can never happen, I might as well get some money. Some would say that Judas was greedy and betrayed Jesus for just the 30 pieces of silver. He loved money more than Jesus. Maybe. And there is some evidence... For that count of his greedy character, if you'll turn to John chapter 12, 
John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So you're looking good, Lazarus. You're looking really good. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus says, leave her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Judas cared about money. He, liked to, he, he carried the money bag, right? So they kind of put their money together as disciples, and Judas seemed to be the one in charge of it. That's a certain amount of authority, but he would abuse the authority, take money out of it. He liked money. He liked money. I would tell you, though, uh, and in my judgment, it is not enough just that he liked money. I don't think liking money was enough to cause the betrayal. I think it sort of exaggerated the problem. It seems to me, I suspect, that Judas, I wonder what his faith was like. He did not seem to understand the gospel. And remember, I just made the point about Peter. When Peter stood against says, you will not go to the cross, Jesus rebukes them. You see how Judas is out, it's kind of not connecting to the fact that Jesus is preparing for death. There's several beautiful parts about this, about the anointing of Jesus. But Jesus' interpretation of this is not just, that's a nice act, but you're preparing my body for burial. Verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is going to die and he knows it. And the gift of expensive perfume on him is a blessing for him who is about to die. And Judas either doesn't believe that Jesus is about to die or doesn't think he's worth it. He says, hey, we could do something else with that money. Jesus says, you've got lots of opportunity for that. Something special is happening right now. Can you not see it? It's hard for me to believe that someone who truly loved Jesus, truly loved him, would sell him out for money. Even a large amount of money. I think there's a problem with Judas's faith even before the social pressure came on. Did Judas believe that Jesus was the Messiah? It's not entirely clear. Judas did call Jesus rabbi. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. For example, in Matthew 26, 25. But we do not have a record of Judas ever calling Jesus Lord. Did he never believe? Possibly. Turn to John chapter 6. This is the bread of life uh, passage. And kind of after the big bread of life disquisition here, there's an, there's an encounter here. Uh, look in verse 63. This is Jesus speaking. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then you have this kind of added parenthetical note. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
Sounds maybe like several didn't believe. And the implication seems to be that Judas might have been in that crowd. Did Judas not believe? Maybe. Maybe so. Maybe Judas himself was not sure if he believed. Maybe that's why he kept sticking around. Exactly what all the steps of the internal process were for Judas, I'm not sure we know with certainty. But I suspect that he got to his betrayal because when it got hard, it either broke him or revealed that he never really believed, never really believed in the first place. It just it took the shine off and the pressure made clear who he was. Despair allows our natural vices to grow and swell. You've got flaws. I've got flaws. And when you despair, the worst parts of us grow strong. It is our submission to Christ that weakens and undermines those vices. It kind of calms them, soothes them, and tames them, or even removes them. But when somebody despairs, whether it is a despair in God, or despair in the future, or a despair in a relationship, it is our worst traits that become activated. And we become especially selfish and wicked. I think Judas had a natural greed, but I think that greed was fanned into flames when he thought that everything else he might possibly have hoped for appeared to be lost. I think his fears arose and became stronger and dominated him. And he did things that perhaps he himself could not have imagined himself doing when things were calmer and the stakes were lower. And he was just listening to interesting parables. I think Judas wanted something secure in an uncertain moment. And I think Jesus looked extremely uncertain to him. Where is this going? What? What does Jesus even think is going to happen? What is he going to gain out of this? And he needs certainty. And so he gets cash. Judas seems to think, there is no resurrection from the dead. I might as well get a buck before I die someday too. We're all going to die. Might as well get some money first. Money is something I can trust. Whether God is there to redeem us or not. God is doubtful. Money is certain. I'll take the money, Judas said. This is the character of sin, brothers and sisters. This is the character of sin to think that holding a physical item is more secure than the promises of God. So I cannot have what he promised me. I give up on faith in that. But I will have this smaller, lesser thing that I can hold on to where it won't slip out of my fingers. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to yourself when you are tempted to despair. Where do you run? Where do you run thinking it's a safe place? Is it greed? Is it anxiety? Is it isolation? Sequester yourself off from others? Because they are doubtful, but you are certain. Is it a surrender to sensuality? Where you say, I cannot have the great things of this world, but I'll get what I can get. Do not let your despair provoke your favorite sin into action. When you give up on the promises of God, your worst qualities will appear. Return to God and destroy your fears. Discipline your fears. He is bigger than your fears. Despair over the promises of God will lead us to trade things of infinite value for the mediocre things. But look what Jesus says in Matthew 16. 
Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Isn't that Judas's story? He says, at least I'll get something. And Jesus says, that's a bad trade. It won't even advantage you. Even the money won't do what you think it will do. And you've given up something of infinite value. For that, it's pathetic. Despair over the promises of God will lead us to surrender what we were made for for things we falsely believe to be safer. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We think this world is certain. What fools we are. What fools we are. Where can we run and hide from corruption? Where can we run and hide from the processes of nature? You say, well, I'm glad a hurricane didn't come through here. Oh, there's lots of varieties. It doesn't have to be a hurricane. Where can you run and hide from death? Where can you run and hide from human sin? Where can you run and hide from yourself? If you isolate yourself from the world, you'll bring yourself with you. And that's plenty of problems. That's plenty of problems right there. Do not surrender what you were made for, for things you falsely believe to be safer. Despair of the promises of God also open us up to the powers of Satan and evil. Turn to John chapter 13. John 13, starting at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. It's interesting to me, it's not clear to the disciples, they don't already automatically know that Judas will be the one who betrays. Like, who's he talking about? Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, Is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. To despair over the promises of God opens yourself up to powers of evil. You surrender. You allow more into your life than you know. Ultimately, despair over holy things, things of great and eternal value, will lead to our bitter remorse later when we guiltily admit that we have failed to believe exactly what we should have. Turn back to Matthew chapter 27.
Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Judas got the silver. He got it. He got the deal he made for him. And what did it mean to him? It disgusted him. He had to look at it and think about what he had surrendered. The ideals that he had sacrificed for this. The innocence that he had given up for his cynical decision. The guilt that he had accepted when he betrayed Christ, the innocent one. Bitter remorse. What will your sinful gains mean to you on the day when you are forced to admit what you abandoned in order to have them? What will they mean to you when your despair throws away the infinite for the finite? Or throws away holy love in exchange for bitterness? What will you think when you are forced to admit of who you hurt? Or what you sacrificed because you didn't have the courage to believe what Jesus told you over and over and over? Have you despaired already of the promises of God? I have a word for you this morning. The word is, do not despair over your previous despair. Do not despair over that failure. There is still mercy in Christ. Judas is, of course, a very dramatic example of despair in the Gospels. And it is an important reminder to us of how deadly despair can be. To give up on faith. To give up on God. And give up on holiness. It's deadly. But do not forget... All of the disciples came to despair. They all did. Not just Judas. They didn't all cooperate with treachery against Christ, as Judas did. And they did not all come to his despairing end. Most of them, of course, did not. But Peter had spiritual problems too. Judas did. Judas had greed. Well, Peter had problems. And Peter never would have abandoned Jesus. And he said so. He never would have done that. Until things got ugly. And he felt abandoned. And then he did exactly that. Peter despaired of Jesus. And three times denied that he even knew him. And yet, grievous and guilty as this was, after rising from the dead, Jesus came to Peter, appeared to him, and reinstated him three times. Let me show you another example of despair. Despair that ultimately ended not in death, but in hope and restoration. Turn the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Start at the end of the chapter, verse 55. 
The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Put yourself there in this moment. Jesus is dead. The hopes for a Messiah were dead. They were coming looking for a corpse, and they had all the equipment ready for a dead body that died with their hopes. They were so sure that Jesus was the Messiah, was who he said. He did so many things, and he spoke with an authority that no one had. They say, but I guess not. I guess not. They come to a grave. Their hopes and the promises of God were dead. Their hopes for a way out of this fallen and wrecked and wretched world were dead. I thought we were going to fix this. I thought we had this injustice was going to be solved by Jesus. He talked about it enough. I thought the sin that abides in me and abides in us was going to be dealt with. But I guess it's not. I guess we're still just jerks. I guess we're still just sinners. And I guess we're still in a system where pagans rule over us with their idea of right and wrong and force the people of God to obey them. I guess there are no answers. And Jesus has died. Let me look on his dead body at least. And just remember the hope I used to have. You remember the good old days when we used to believe that Jesus was our Savior? Let's at least look on that and remember how, not today, but how happy we used to be. How blessed we felt. But they can't even have their memorial of their past hope anymore. The body was gone. Even that has been taken from us. Christ as alive was taken from us, and Christ dead has been taken from us. What do they have? They can only ask this, what will become of me? What will become of me? What will become of you? What will become of the followers of Christ? We were disciples. Now we are abandoned and alone in a ruined world. He was our best chance, and it's done. Where do we go when the Savior himself has left us? Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Don't you remember what he told you? Don't you remember what he said to you again and again and again? Why are you so surprised that God is faithful? Why are you so surprised that God loves you? Why are you so surprised that God is powerful and can do what he says and more? 
Do you think because you cannot solve death that God cannot? Do you think because you are wicked that God is not good? Do you think because you break your promises, God will not keep his? Our meager standards and our frailties and weaknesses are not the measure of his victory. He is our Savior. We do not save ourselves. It is all exactly as he told you it would be. You have been saved. You have been saved. Even while while you come to the gravesite, mourning for all that is good, expecting death, and you don't understand it yet. They're perplexed. They don't know what's going on. It seems to have gotten worse. They were already saved. Resurrection had already happened before they arrived. So with us. You've been saved from the dark powers. You've been saved from yourself. Now go, find your friends in despair, and let them know too that Jesus is raised. Brothers and sisters, do not disbelieve God's promises to you. Do not disbelieve in your salvation. Do not despair in his faithfulness to you and in his power to save. You say, the situation has no hope. Things are darker every day. Believer, oh believer, God spoke light into the darkness. And it was good. God raised Jesus from the dead to our eternal blessedness and joy. God made a way where there was no way. Do not despair in Christ. He has risen, just as he said. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Forgive our foolishness and our inattentiveness and our carelessness with your words. Forgive us for reducing you to our size and finding fault in you because of the faults we carry in ourselves. Lord, forgive our despair when we should have faith and hope. Forgive our declamations that all is lost when we have already been saved. Our salvation has already been affected. Forgive our worries about tomorrow, despite your faithfulness to us yesterday. You do not promise us an easy life. And Christ certainly didn't live an easy life. But you have promised us salvation in that Christ. And victory over death and sin. We cling to that, Lord. That is all we have. That is all we have. And we claim it. For ourselves, we claim the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. When we stumble, lift us up and do not cast us away. When we despair, Lord, restore us even as you restored Peter to right standing as a disciple under a merciful and good Lord who is all-knowing and all-powerful and who has made a way where there is no way. All praise be to the risen Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.